Turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. If you're our guest this morning, we are plowing through the Gospel of Matthew together over the last <laughs> months and um, in the thick of things. So let me, let me explain to you where we are, and it will give you some context for where we're, we're going today in Matthew 22, the parable of the wedding banquet. Jesus has entered Jerusalem as the triumphant king in chapter 21, the right before Easter, the triumphal entry, the palm branches, all that going on. So he's entered Jerusalem as a king, where he drives out the money changers, drives out the, 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 the um, economic system set up for the sacrifices, and he heals the blind and the lame so that they can enter in and worship, uh, not just out in the court of Gentiles, but they can actually enter in and worship God. So he enters the temple as a priest. And then Jesus um, begins temp- uh, uh, as priest, and now... He is speaking as a prophet, and he has spoken quite firmly, clearly, compassionately, and yet, and yet, you know, with, as a prophet speaks truthfully, um, specifically to the religious leaders who are uh, leading the, the temple, the Sadducees, metaphorically, right? So he's spoken truth in the parable of the two sons and the parable of the vineyard. And I encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message with regard to those two parables. But he also did it metaphorically when he went to the fig tree. And it, did, it had all these leaves. It promised fruit, but it didn't bear any fruit. And so he cursed it as a way of speaking uh, metaphorically in their religious activity that they had all this fruit, but it didn't actually have any to begin with. Okay, So that's the tone. That's the, that's the context in which we are... Um, in which we're studying the parable of the wedding banquet today. Okay, Jesus is speaking as a prophet, so that's that's where we'll be. So let me let me. One of the things that I have come to appreciate about being married is that after twenty some odd years, uh, you can like there's no hiding like how bad you are at things. Like you just you can pretend to yourself, you can lie to yourself all day long, but in the reality is there are these people that live with you. Um, well, in marriage, just one person, and then later kids come along. So now there's people. That's what I want to believe about myself. The reality is I have these people that see exactly the things that I'm short, short in. Um, and one of those is lately is that I have not been able to park a car. <laughs> I just can't do it. Holly was gone, you know, to the I sent her a picture. I, I pulled into the driveway, and I thought it was perfect. I pulled into the driveway, stopped at the top of it, got out, got, went to the house, did my thing, came back out an hour later, and my car is half in the grass. And half in my driveway. How is that possible? Because I was a hundred percent confident in my ability. And then the other, just and then just this week, I was with her and we parked. And I said, "I want you to know, I got in between the two lines." And we stood out. And yeah, I was in between the two lines like this. It was that wide of a girth that I had to work with in my little sedan. I was still at like a twenty-five degree angle. I am now incapable of parking a car, okay? I have to choose to park between two other vehicles on purpose so that I can make sure to get in between. Even though in my mind I think I'm good at it, it's pretty clear, and everybody can laugh at me in the house, Dad cannot park west, okay? And that my house is somewhere over there. But that's only because I've been coming here for two and a half years and have figured out that way is home, and if I look at a map, that's west. Any other thing you tell me to go to, there's no telling which direction I'm pointing. I have no idea. I cannot do it. But I'm so confident when I do it because I'm a moron, right? <laughs> like, I'm super cocky about, no, it's over there. And Holly will go, honey, I'm so sorry to do this for you. But 
it's over there. It's like Kevin when he corrected me about basketball tournaments and matches the other day, in the, right in the middle of the sermon. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> but he was right because I, it's like it's embarrassing for me to keep talking about basketball matches because there are no such things as basketball matches. Okay, so I have all these things, right? We so. My perception of myself is one thing, but the reality of myself is another, right? And there's this phrase that gets tossed around quite a bit. Ken, where did Ken go? Where did, this came up in Sunday school last week, right? Somebody used this phrase, perception is 100% reality. And you could just see Ken's blood begin to boil, <laughs> right? It was a rabbit trail that he just, he, it was the one rabbit trail in Sunday school that Ken allowed us to chase just for a hot, just for a hot minute. He has to wrangle all of us cats in um, at the same time. Perception is 100% reality. Is it? No, it's not, it's not reality. But, and this is the force of that statement, a, someone's perception can become that person's reality, right? Which is what's going on with me and my parking and my driving and my directional issues and my basketball matches, okay? So perception has a very potent influence on how we look at reality. And this is true about Bible interpretation, by the way. Because I said last week that I thought today's parable, this parable of the wedding banquet, is arguably the most difficult parable in the Bible. And I got that because one of the... Actually, he's the authoritative scholar in the West on Jesus' parables. Actually said it. He said, and I quote, Matthew's version of this parable is enough to make any parables of all. Okay? That's his perception of the biblical reality. And yet another one pastor, theologian, that I have frequently trusted in our study of Matthew said... From time to time in these studies, I've acknowledged that a parable can be difficult to interpret, but that problem does not exist with the parable of the wedding of the banquet. Of the wedding. So he's got a completely different perspective about the same thing. So I want to ask you, whose perception is reality? Whose perception is reality? I've spent enough time with this text, and it's somewhere in the middle, okay? That's, which is often the case, Okay. But some, because sometimes when you're reading something, you can make the Bible interpretation a lot more difficult and more exciting than it actually is. Okay? And when we do that, it makes it very difficult to unravel some of, the, some of our perception to get at reality. Okay? What is it Yoda? Yoda said, we must unlearn what we have learned. Right? That's, that's, so that, that's what we've got to do a little bit today. So you are this to your interpretation of this text. You've been taught it a hundred times. You've read it different ways. Maybe you've interpreted it according to a certain system. There's a, we're all bringing that, okay? We're all bringing that to this text today. So I'm not going to go down all the different interpretations of this text. There are some things that regardless, it's super clear what Jesus is trying to teach us today. So we're going we're gonna to knock it out. Now here's the thing. This parable is all interpret. It's all application. It's all application. So if you're accustomed to like letting me teach for 20 minutes, and then when I say "so what," you go, "Oh, I can pay attention now." Okay, you got to pay attention the whole sermon this time. Okay, because the whole thing is just application. All right. The the parable of the a wedding blanket. The first thing I want you to to see from this text is that we cannot presume upon the grace of God. Don't presume. On the grace of God. Look at the text. Once more, Jesus speaking to the religious leaders, Sadducees and Pharisees in the temple, speaking to them in parables. A third one in a row for Matthew. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. 
He sent his servants to summon those invited to the banquet, but they didn't want, underline that word, they didn't want to come. Okay, so a few things you need to understand about the nature of what's going on in this parable. Okay, it was the custom in Jesus' day for there to be two rounds of invitation for a wedding banquet. Okay, so just like this one. So the first one would have contained like, hey guys, we're going to have a wedding. Daughter's getting married, son's getting married. We're getting married, we're going to have a wedding. It's going to be here. It's going to be at this time, this day. So just so you know, we'll get you the details later, but you're invited. Okay, put it on. Put it on the, put it on the calendar, if you will. And then a second invitation would have come, and that second invitation would have been the summons. Not, it's not like, now really, you should RSVP. No, it's, it's time to come. I've invited you. You've known about the details. It's been on your calendar, even if you, you should know. And now the second is getting started. Okay, so that's the, and you can see that in verse 3. He sent his servants to do what? To summon those, past tense, who had been invited. Okay, so it's keeping in, in, into it's, it's keeping in context with the tradition of Jesus' day. But here's the thing. There's a king throwing this wedding. This is a, a monarch throwing a wedding banquet. So this is not just like the party Jesus went to in John chapter 2, where it's just a family and a whole bunch of family, and then for six or seven days they you know, feast and drink wine, and Jesus turns water into wine, et cetera, et cetera. This is, it's not that. It's, it's a monarch throwing a wedding banquet for, for family. And so it's not just a few. It's the peop, all of his people are invited, right? So this is, a, because it's a monarch, this is an amazing banquet. Um, it would have lasted at least seven days. And because it's a king who's doing the inv- inviting, honor, this is really important to understand, there's this sense of honor that the people should possess because they want to honor the king, that he would think of them, that they're going to go, but there's also this sense of terror that they should bear, if they, that they should carry, if they should think in their minds for some reason that they're not going to go, because it's the king. Right? What is it that, that uh, Lewis does to describe Aslan? Right? So he's not what, but he's good. Right? He says, he's not what? He's not safe, right? but he is good. That's the king, right? And that's the situation in this parable. He's a monarch. He's not safe, but he's good. Okay? So there's this sense of, I want to honor him who is good. And I want to be scared a little bit of the one who is he's not safe. Right? It's like a, a friend of mine in Georgia. He says, he says, he tells his girls, I think I've told you this before, Daddy, God is a lot like Daddy, really, really loving and a little scary. Right? That- they didn't want to come. They didn't overlook the invitation. Oh, I've just, I just forgot. You know, that's not there. It's not, they didn't put, it's not that they didn't put it on their calendars. They willfully considered an invitation by the monarch to come to a feast, and they didn't want to come. And Jesus' original audience would have heard that and been appalled. Okay? They would have been appalled. And they also would have been picking up a little bit on who they are in this story. So, um, I noticed yesterday on Facebook that several of you, and I noticed this morning, my kids noticed it as soon as we pulled in, there's a new playground out there. Did everybody see that this morning? 
Yes, you saw that? Okay. By show of hands, men who were here yesterday building the playground. Raise your hand. One. Just be proud. Be proud. Three men over here. Four or five. Excellent. All right. Thank you. Now, by show of hands, men, how many of you were at the steak dinner that Kevin paid for just a couple of weeks ago? Raise your hand. Wow. Yeah, right? Way, way, way more. Right. Who's going to miss out on the steak dinner? It's like, it's like, you know, you find out who your friends are when you ask them to come and help you move. Right? There's that sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. Same thing happened with the playground. Guys, thank you. The playground looks amazing. Thank you for your, your work and, and putting that together. Okay, so that's the sense of what's going on here in this parable. The king has invited them, and they just... So who would turn down Kevin's steak dinner? Only like one person couldn't come, and he was devastated, right? That, how much? And they just say, eh, they turn it down. So what would the king do? Look at verse 4. Remember, we're, we're talking about grace, not presuming upon grace. Verse 4, he sent out other servants and said... Tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. So the king unprecedentedly gives a third invitation. This would never happen. Okay? This is like the, the father in Luke 15 actually selling land to give the cash to the son and let him go on his way. It's like the father running out to him when he would actually should be punishing him at the end of Luke chapter, or in the middle of Luke chapter 15, the parable of the lost son. This king, who is highly gracious, issues a third invitation, and he sends even more servants. And just in case they don't understand, like, no, really, I've, fattened, I've got an ox, not, I don't know, it doesn't really sound appealing to me, but I'm sure there it was like really amazing. We've got, we've got the cattle. It's just going to be an amazing party. It is ready. Come, 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 come. And look how they respond in verse 5. They paid no attention and went away, one to his own farm, another to his business, and while the rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. And the king was enraged, and he sent out his troops killed those murderers, and he burned down their city. So despite the abundance of grace, many of these invitees just out and out reject the king's invitation, okay? And they use the most, tri well, they sound trivial now because we're kind of looking at it, you know, on the back end of all these things. But, you know, I got a farm to run. I got a farm to run. I got a business to run, Right? And some of them escalate things, and they abuse, and they kill the king's messengers, which is, of course, an unbelievably insulting thing to do. And so what does the king do? But he punishes these subjects with death and with fire, which is a punishment that a king would use only when real treason had been committed. Now, just a small interpretive thing about this. There are some Bible interpreters who think that Jesus is in some sort of symbolic way pointing ahead to around 70 AD when Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed, the city. I don't think that's the case. I think because of the audience. Who's the audience? It's the religious leaders, the Sadducees, the temple leaders. 
and, 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 and he's trying to bring them to this place of repentance, trying to bring them to this place to repent and believe that the kingdom of God is near in the person of Jesus Christ. He's speaking a word of prophecy to them. So what does he do? He does what all prophets do. He points back to 586 B.C. when Jerusalem was destroyed and when it was ruined by fire and the temple was destroyed back then. And he's saying, and he's saying to them, Think this is the story of the, of the Jewish people. And you rejected him to just be, just, to just do life. And you were even hostile to his grace. And what happened? Well, you can read the Old Testament. You know what happened. But we're not that audience. So how does this relate to us? Number one, we, we, we cannot presume Upon grace, right? Jesus is saying to the religious leaders here that their invitation to participate in the kingdom of God is one that they, as Jewish leaders, should recognize and believe, and but they don't. They don't. They're way too occupied with their religious activity. They don't want any part of a banquet of grace because they're really good working the religion that they've got going on. And because they're really good at working their religion, they are presumptive about their status as insiders. So to us, in our context, this is a parable, the third one in a row, by the way. Think this is important? It's a warning to us. If you've grown up in church all your life, you've gotten really comfortable at being here, you think it's important, you're, you're at the activities, you're doing all the things. This is a parable that challenges, this is a portion of the parable that yet again, third time in a row, challenges us to examine our heart and its relationship to the religious activity that we do in our life. Okay? Is our religious activity actually fruit of the Spirit that gives us confidence in our salvation by grace through faith? Or is it something upon which we presume that by doing, we are right with God that we're doing it? Okay, We're going we're gonna to dive really deep into that next week. That's the rest of chapter 22. But, but the question is, like the insiders of verses 1 through 7, do we presume upon grace? We shouldn't. Nor should we limit it. We don't want to presume upon grace. We don't want to limit God's grace. Look at verses 8 through 10. Then in the parable, he told his servants, the banquet is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go then to where the roads exit the city and invite everyone you find to the banquet. So those servants went out on the roads and what did they do? Gathered, okay, they gathered. This is different than invited. This is more aggressive, right? And they gathered everyone they found, both evil and good. And the wedding banquet, wedding banquet was filled with gas. Okay, you remember the parable about the wheat and the tares? How the wheat is growing up and the tares are growing up with it. And you can't tell until the very end, until it's fruit season, which the dif- what's the difference between wheat and and tares, because only the wheat has actual fruit on it. The rest of it is all these different fish. And then he separates all the different kinds of fish. That's what's happening here. That's what the kingdom of God is like. It's gathering in 
All of these people, both evil and good, they all come in, they all come in, they all come in. And then at the end, when it's time to reign for eternity, there is this separation. Okay? Kingdom of this is the this is the continuation of that theme that the kingdom of God is not just about one ethnic group of people, but it's about reaching out into all kinds of people and bringing them in. And then we're going to come to the separation in just a little bit, but it's referenced here in verse 8 and gathering. So if you think about Jesus' ministry, this is not a surprise. This is one of the benefits of going through Matthew. And you see how this comes to play, right? Because if you go to Matthew 5, uh, you go to Matthew 9, where Jesus emphasizes that it's not the externally righteous or the healthy that need a doctor, but it's the sick. And those are the ones that Jesus has come to invite into the kingdom of heaven, the sick Matthew 9, you go to Matthew 18, only those who recognize their helplessness, like a sick person or like a child, only those people who cast aside their self-reliance or their self-worthiness, those are the ones who can accept the grace of God. Those are the ones that are being brought in. Those are the ones that are being gathered. Okay? The publicans, the sinners, or what did Jesus say in the last parable? The prostitutes, the tax collectors. They're going to get in before you who are insiders. They're being invited in, okay? Because of grace. The wedding hall is wide open to people that would otherwise, from a Jewish leader's perspective, be very undeserving of such an invitation and of such an experience, right? Prostitutes, tax collectors, blind, lame, sick. Go on down the list, okay? It's because of grace. The very people that you'd never expect to be at a party that God is throwing are going to be at the party that God is throwing. So we don't want to limit grace. Folks, if you're limiting grace, it's not grace. By definition, it's unlimited May we never presume that because of someone's social status, their ethnicity, their rebellion at any one stage in life, or a pattern of months or even years, never assume that they are beyond grace. Because grace is unlimited. It's far too easy to look at somebody's state at any one point in time and think, well, they're gone. No, they're not. The king is gathering in all kinds of people in the banquet, and all kinds of people are joining the party. So we cannot limit grace. If you're like, right now in your stage of life, you're like, I don't want anything to do with this. Well, God feels very differently about you. The invitation is to come to the party. Okay, And that invitation is going to last as long as he gives you breath. And if you're the kind of person who's like, there's just no way God could, I mean, I don't want, I don't even want God to limit. So you have a grace problem. Don't limit grace. And don't cheapen it. Don't presume upon it. Don't limit it. And don't cheapen it. Look at verses 11 through 13. When the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed for a wedding. 
So he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him up hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, Folks, don't cheapen the gracious invitation. You cannot have Jesus on your own terms. Okay? The invitation of grace brings with it the demand of holiness. Okay? Unlimited grace brings an unlimited demand on your life. There are requirements for those of us who respond positively to the grace, okay? So the par- in the parable, it's assuming that the man has had time to come properly attired. He knows what he's supposed to do. He's read the law. He understands who Jesus is, but he's, 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 he just doesn't do it. What's important is this, this man made no preparation to wear something appropriate to this feast that he chose to attend. He had every opportunity, but he, was, he cheapened the invitation by showing up like he didn't care, which is a metaphor for cheap grace. Okay. This is what so much of Romans is about this, right? If grace abounds, then sin can abound all the more. This is the person whose grace, who looks at grace and says, now I have a license to do whatever I want. I can be indifferent to holiness because Jesus wasn't. No, no, no. That's cheap grace. And no one has ever said it better than Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Go buy his book today, The Cost of Discipleship. He says, cheap grace is the mortal enemy of our church. Our struggle today is for costly grace. Cheap grace means grace as bargain basement goods, cut rate forgiveness, cut rate comfort, cut rate by careless hands without hesitation or limit. It's grace without a price. It's grace without cost. It's preaching forgiveness without repentance. It's baptism without community. It's Lord's Supper without confession. It's absolution without confession. Cheap grace is without is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without living incarnate Jesus Christ. That's cheap, cheap grace, and that is not the gospel. Don't presume upon grace. Don't limit grace, but please, please don't cheapen grace because grace is costly. Bonhoeffer says, costly grace is the hidden treasure in the field for the sake of which people sell everything they have. It's a costly pearl for whose price the merchant sells everything he has. It's the gospel which must be sought after again and again. It's the gift which has to be asked for. It's the door at which you have to knock. It's grace as God's holy treasure which we must be protect, which must be protected from the world and must never be thrown to the dogs. You see all the parables that he's just rattling off again and again because that's been the point this whole time that the kingdom of God is a gracious kingdom and we may not presume upon it and we may not limit it and we must not cheapen it. So let me sum up. God is giving a party. Do you want to come?
giving a party. Who wants to come? Okay. I miss Derek Webb when he was a believer. Maybe he'll come back. He has this great line in a song called Beloved. He says, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. Um, so you bring all your history, and I'll bring the bread and the wine. And, and he's, this is God speaking. We'll have us a party where all the drinks are on me. God has given a party. Do you want to come? This parable is just as true and accurate today as it was then. It's an invitation that goes out to all of us in our daily lives. You take it with you. I'm preaching it today. The fact is that some that you'd expect to attend this party are going to be too preoccupied with other things to give in any mind, and others that you'd never expect to come are going to be the first ones in line to come to the party. Okay. The expected will be absent, and the unexpected will be present. God has given a party. Are you going to come? But this also speaks to our ministry as a church. Okay. We are inviting people to a banquet, God's party, okay? Which means, yes, they're going to have to drop everything and become all consumed with it, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is near. But y'all, it's a banquet that we're inviting them to. Not asceticism, it's a banquet, okay? So our witness as a church needs to be characterized with the kind of joy that inherently comes with being at a banquet. So the, the, a great example of this, I was speaking with a friend from a... I used to serve at a, a church in Brentwood years and years ago as a student ministry, and I reconnected with somebody who's still there. And I said, how are things going? They're going great. I said, he said, we've got, almost, we've got almost 50 college students now who drive from Vanderbilt and Belmont and come down into, into Brentwood to come to church. I passed, as a student minister, I get to our collegiate ministry. I said, well, that's amazing. I had never in my life, I, as a student minister, I was you know, semi-responsible. There were way too many teenagers to worry about it. But I said, what happened? They said, well, we had, we had a staff member who was a young adult in mission, so that, that kind of helped, and he just kind of started having lunch. He said, but there was this one girl who loved what God was doing in her life through our church, and she sold, she was a college student, she sold her car, I'm trying to think what would happen if Trey sold his car and did this. What would I, how would I respond? Sold her car, bought a 15-passenger van, and went around and said, I'm going to church. I'll take you. Come with me. And two years later, you've got 50 college students coming on Sunday morning in Brentwood from Vanderbilt University. Can you believe that? You know, what's that? I'm going to a banquet every Sunday. I'm buying a van so I can bring 14 other people to come with me. Who wants to come to the party? Who wants to come to the party? I hope you do. And I hope you want to tell people about the party. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the party. Thank you for the gracious invitation. We really all deserve what the people got who presumed upon grace. That's what we all deserve. But you are so gracious. You just keep giving us life and breath and extend the invitation for us to come to the party. And it is a banquet. The gospel is a glorious banquet where we 
love and serve and enjoy you forever. Let that joy extend into the ministry of this church from us as individuals and us corporately and organizationally as a church. May grace define, may grace define our ministry and the joy that comes with being a part of it. And Lord, would you keep us from presuming upon grace? Would you keep us from limiting grace? Would you protect us, Lord, from cheapening grace? Help us. Thank you.